Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm at Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And our journalist, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Network 10's Chief Content Officer, Beverly McGarvey, on ditching the overnight ratings. Overnight ratings, they're not meaningless. They have some value, but they tell you one part of the story. How to judge a hit in 2019. Because when there's so much choice these days, some shows take a bit of time to be discovered, and sometimes they take more than one series, so therefore you have to look at other metrics. And 10's lineup for the end of the year. You have to do something different in the back quarter. It's not like programming in January or February. It's been a long year of TV. But first, the week's topics. Media bosses call for law reform. Anonymous commenting in the crosshairs. Was GoFundMe right to drop Israel Falau's fundraiser? And is BWS right to support Dry July? So, first up, let's get into... A heartwarming show of unity from all of the media companies that normally hate each other. News Corp's Michael Miller, Nine's Hugh Marks and the ABC's David Anderson joined forces this week to speak at the National Press Club. Now, this comes off the back of the AFP raids on the home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst and on the ABC's headquarters in Sydney. Hannah, you watched the stream of the event from the Press Club. What was the main takeaway? Yes, I did. Um, So the main takeaway really is they are calling for reform. They provided a document to the media which outlines six areas that they want change in. Um, Generally, the chat was around the fact that national security laws in this country have kind of escalated to a place maybe over a matter of years. They said especially since September 11, um, things have kind of been beefed up since then. And it's kind of, uh, Hugh Marks put it best, I think he said it, he used the analogy of boiling the frog where things have gotten worse and gotten worse and gotten worse. And it's not until now that the government is actually, um, or the AFP rather, is actually coming in with these raids that people are kind of realizing, hang on, maybe we're in a place that we don't want to be in. Yeah, I I, I had a long weekend away as I spent a bit of time sitting on a plane uh, with my trusty copy of The Economist. And what I found really eye-opening was just reading a kind of worldview on Australia at the moment. I won't read the whole thing, but the... The intro for a growing number of Australians, it's like stumbling out of bed and not recognizing, let alone liking the face you see in the bathroom mirror. So yeah, they, 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 they talk about the federal police raid on the headquarters of the ABC, which was about those allegations of uh, the Australian special forces behavior in Afghanistan, including the killing of unarmed men and children. Uh, which The Economist makes the point, well, that's kind of doing the country a service by revealing such misconduct. They also make the point that in that one, the whistleblower is known. Um, he's, he's made himself known, formerly a lawyer with the Defence Department. He'd followed the public interest disclosure rules and only when he concluded they were being ignored did he actually take his material to journalists. And yet he's actually facing charges uh, around the disclosure of unauthorised documents and faces a life sentence. Um, should those allegations be proven against him um and that's not isolated as we say we've talked about the raid on Anna Smethurst from the Sunday Telegraph which was around secret plans to expand Australia's surveillance powers spy on Australians another example former spy witness K and his lawyer Bernard Colery um charged 
for something that happened years ago, exposing Australia's bugging of the government of Timor-Leste during negotiations over the rights to offshore oil. So it was that one as well. Um, You've then got an employee of the ATO, Richard Boyle, facing 66 charges and 161 years in jail for exposing what he saw as aggressive debt collection techniques. And again, he tried to report it internally before becoming a whistleblower when nothing happened. Um, And this is Australia, a Western Mm. democracy. Um, It's a bit depressing. It is a bit depressing. Um, So... Public sector whistleblowers is one area of reform in which they're that they're calling for um, some extra protection there. But it is you're right, it is depressing. Um, and also, it was interesting. Catherine Murphy, who's the political editor for the Guardian, um, she was at the press club event, and she very rightly called all three people on stage out for uh, up until this point. The media has been very quiet on these laws and has allowed a lot of them to come through. Um, some press in particular, has maybe said that they're not harsh enough, that maybe um, Australia's national security isn't strong enough, and it's only now that the blowback is hitting them that they're like, oh, hang on a second. Um, So after the press club, they had um, the ABC had Dr. Dennis Muller of the University of Melbourne on, um, and he was talking about it, and he uh, pointed out that, especially in the... um, the Five Eyes Alliance, Australia is actually the most conservative one and our media in particular is very conservative. So the Five Eyes being the kind of established westernised democracies around the world and their intelligence sharing. Yeah, and he was saying that's kind of come off the back of us having a string of conservative governments to date. Um, But also he just thinks, you know, Australia is just quite a conservative nation, which then if when you actually start looking at these laws – That all makes a lot of sense. It's worth noting as well that this year Australia fell out of the top 20 in the World Press Freedom Index and we also fell seven places to 15th in Future Brands Country Index, which ranks countries on their sort of international brand reputation. And both of those worldwide surveys cited Australia's increasing conservatism and draconian laws, which was the wording used by the World Press Freedom Index. So I think that feeds back into your point, Tim, about Australia waking up and not really knowing who we are anymore. That's not just happening on a local scale. I think our reputation and the perceptions internationally of us are falling as well. Yeah. Look, it is, there, there is that question of, you know, is Australia as it thinks it is in terms of, you know, freedom-loving, anti-authority? Um, uh, as I was away at the weekend, I was uh, uh, overseas and uh, found myself sitting at a teppanyaki table with various strangers from other parts of the world. And reputationally, the, the other question about Australia was they were talking about Sydney in specific. None of them were from Australia, but they were well, like, I heard it's rubbish now. You can't go out at night. Um, <laughs> that was the international perception now of, of what, why come to live or, or, or come to visit Australia. So there are kind of challenges at the moment. So it will be interesting to see what happens with the sort of master brand of Australia, which is being redone at the moment, which is attempting to reshape international perceptions of us as a business and tourism and investment destination. While that's not directly linked to press freedom, if our international perception is falling at a time that we're trying to relaunch the business brand of Australia, that's a really difficult task. Come to Australia. We'll be watching what time you go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Next. 
Defamation and commenting. The line is drawn for publishers. Sticking with broadly the same topic, one of the areas that Michael Miller and David Anderson and Hugh Marks addressed at the Press Club appearance was the defamation ruling in the Dylan Voller case and what that means for publishers. Um, Brittany, you covered this one. Uh, it's also worth mentioning to our listeners that you have something of a legal background. What was the ruling? <laughs> Um, I did and I do. Um, I am qualified as a lawyer, but I haven't practiced. So that's that's always the caveat on that. So Justice Stephen Rothman decided at the start of this week that legally media outlets are essentially publishers of readers' Facebook comments. So in this case, um, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, uh, Sky News, The Bolt Report, um, a bunch of outlets have posted stories that they have written to their Facebook pages. Readers have commented on them. Uh, some of those comments are allegedly defamatory. And this is of Dylan Voller. Yeah, so Dylan Voller is um, one of the young people who was featured in a Four Corners 2016 episode about uh, the things that were going on in Dondale Juvenile Detention Centre. He was the person in the episode featured wearing a hood in the CCTV footage um, and that got obviously a lot of attention. So the stories relate to that story um, and him in particular in that story and a number of the comments on the Facebook posts sharing those stories are allegedly defamatory towards Dylan. Uh, So he's made a defamation claim against the outlets rather than the people themselves who have made the comments or against Facebook itself. Um, So Justice Rothman has essentially said that, yes, publishers are liable for reader comments um, and he suggested that what publishers should do in terms of moderating those comments is apply a bunch of filters whereby you put in a bunch of common words like he, she, the, etc., which will essentially moderate all of your, filter out all of your comments so then you can go through and moderate them individually. Obviously, this had quite a bit of backlash from publishers, particularly the ones involved in the case. So News Corp came out and said that it was ridiculous and said pretty strongly that they have a view to appeal the uh, the decision. Um, Sydney Morning Herald also said it was reviewing its options um, given the implication that it would have on the broader industry. So as it stands, Facebook doesn't provide for page owners a pre-moderation option for comments. So therefore, that's why the suggestion is is of kind of almost sort of, you know, creating a filter by just using common words. Exactly. And one of the big criticisms of it is the sheer amount of resources that would have to go in to doing this. Um, Bigger publishers are obviously better placed to do that, Um, but particularly for small publishers, it's what some say unfeasible to be filtering comments that way. Look, and Viv, I suppose one of the, the, the dilemmas for publishers is they don't want to to just avoid posting on Facebook because it's how their content gets found. And of course, people commenting on it is one of those algorithms that makes it then show up in other people's feeds. Yeah, but it, it feels really risky now to be posting articles onto Facebook because the ones that get engagement and the ones that then feed that algorithm are those more controversial ones. If you post a relatively boring story about Vivian Kelly, appointed editor of Mumbrella, it's not going to get huge engagement unless, you know, my friends decide to do a pile on. It's it's stories about 
Israel Folau, which we'll be talking about later, or a controversial campaign or something quirky and odd which lends itself to disagreement or to people tagging each other and saying inflammatory things. So in a way, we're trying to game the algorithm and post articles that work. But if that's then going to lead to people commenting and something goes viral, you have to have someone then sitting there checking every single comment, which is a resource that publishers don't have, particularly for a platform such as Facebook that they don't even own. Hannah. Mm, there was a, this was kind of touched on at the um, press club event as well. Um, Catherine Murphy again asked a question about um, whether Facebook and Google should be considered publishers and therefore held to the same, uh, the same restrictions that publishers actually are, which Hugh Marks responded with yes and yes. Um, but also they made the point that if in this, this is, a landmark ruling it's the uk doesn't work this way other western countries don't work this way um other media leaders don't work this way and even state by state our defamation laws change so it's a bit of a like you can kind of see where they're coming from just in the way that it's you've got to start being so overly cautious because you could slip one way or the other um also michael miller brought up the point that if another publisher reposts your work where does that take you? So if you've written a story and it gets duplicated somewhere else and suddenly you're like, are you suddenly liable for the comments on that as well? Because that's essentially what Facebook is doing. So it's kind of like, when does it stop? And Brittany, I, I guess another point to make is that this is a sort of first stage or first level ruling. So it probably will get a, a, appealed down the track and tested some more. So presumably this isn't the end of the matter. Yeah. So News Corp particularly um, seems very certain in the fact that they're going to appeal it, um, and I don't blame them. Uh, this was the first hurdle, essentially, to establishing that a defamation case can run. Um, you can't say that it's defamation unless those publications were found to have published those comments. Um, and so first hurdle is sort of has been jumped over. Um, but yes, I would, I would expect an appeal. And I guess to Hannah's point as well, um, Justice Rothman did say that Google is an index and that's what previous defamation cases have decided with regards to Google. Um, but yeah, it goes to show Facebook was introduced in 2004. We had uniform defamation laws that started in 2006. Um, and it's, the latest story in a much bigger story that shows why defamation laws in this country are simply not equipped to handle the nature of the digital beast, I guess. Well, speaking of commenters, uh, we also had an interesting open letter sent out to the industry this week from WPP's interim Australia and New Zealand CEO, John Stebman, uh, calling out trade publications, including Mumbrello, although I don't think he actually named specific publications, for allowing anonymous commenters. Um Viv, uh, I, I guess some of the some of the focus was on this week, which is always an interesting process. Yeah, I mean, I tend to avoid having the trade press talk about itself because I think it can be quite boring and quite self-indulgent. But in this case, someone incredibly prominent, John Stedman, who's the interim CEO of WPP, has come out swinging. So I guess we can't ignore it. And all trade publications in our space have now run it, B&T, Ad News, ourselves, and even Campaign Brief. So we have to give it some attention. And ironically, or perhaps predictably, the comment thread on this, and we do allow anonymous comments at Mumbrella, has 
gone off. So I did suspect that would happen. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword for us. If we didn't post this article, we'd be the bad guys who weren't supporting Stedman's rallying cry, but also we kind of don't support Stedman's rallying cry because we do allow anonymous yeah, comments. Yeah, let's think about that because over the years I, I come and go on this and every few years I, I sit down and think, is it time to stop? You know, I'll see a, I see a particularly bad comment or unhelpful comment or just depressing comment and just think, is this really adding to the quality of the discourse? And then I'll see a really great comment that really adds to it. And then I, I, and where I find it difficult is actually telling the difference between the two and, and coming up with a set of rules that isn't just that authoritarian, unless we know who you are, we won't publish it. Or unless you identify yourself, we won't publish it. And then, of course, you get to how can we actually prove that someone is who they say they are. Interestingly, though, the discourse on the comment thread for this one has been particularly insightful and there hasn't been a lot of personal negativity or unnecessarily negative comments. I think it's been a really robust discussion where people are not putting their name to it, but they're really, really articulately spelling out why they feel we need anonymous comments. And they're saying that it's quite obvious that the people who are putting their name to it and are supporting it are the likes of Tony Hale, the CEO of the Communications Council, Andrea Ingram from BuzzFeed, Henry Tasia, the CEO of Dentsu Aegis Network. Powerful bosses. Peter Horgan, the CEO of Omnicom. They're the ones who are getting on LinkedIn, getting in the comment thread saying, yes, we totally support this. And then others are saying, well, look, that's all well and good for you. But one, you're pretty safe in your position in terms of voicing an opinion. And two, all you're doing is supporting something and clapping each other on the back. Whereas those that are disagreeing are saying, well, hang on, I don't have that position of authority. I don't have that power. I'm not a secure. What if I work at WPP and I want to mm. disagree with John? Mm. Yeah. And actually, I, I, somebody I noticed shared it on, on Facebook, um, on, on his kind of public profile of Facebook was uh, Michael Miller, boss of News Corps again, praising John Steadman's uh, stand. And I'm, you know, I, I, overall, I'm a fan of Michael Miller. I think he's he's good. But I must admit, I did wonder a bit when I then went onto his publication, The Australian, looked at the hundreds of anonymous comments <laughs> and all of the articles, quite how one, one, one can so vociferously support John Steadman's stance yeah. when one's own publications does differently. Or, or again, all of those media bosses you mentioned, of course, all spend their client dollars at places that do allow anonymous comments. Yes. Interestingly, Stedman is almost calling on the industry to stop supporting places that have anonymous comments. Well, which, in fairness, does he actually go that far? He I mean, well, hang on. Yes, go, <laughs> hang on. Uh, Viv, 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 Viv has her, her pen in hand and if she... She has a metaphorical uh, magnifying glass, if not an actual, <laughs> if not an actual one. But we will get there. And while you're looking, it's, it's worth mentioning. Um, I was I was saying to Viv before we start recording. I often don't really know what I think about this for sure until I actually sit down and write about it, which I will be doing for the best of the week email, which will be going out on Saturday. And certainly, you know, I I just a few months back was chatting to Dean Carroll, who's the who publishes our Mumbrella Asia site. And I was saying to him, maybe we should try an experiment. Maybe we should actually ask people to share an identity. And in the end, and that was that was actually sort of what I was arguing more for. But Dean's argument was, no, we should actually be more rigorous in our moderation. And that should be the answer. And, and, and that's actually where we went 
in Asia and, and that seems to be seems to be working but you, you you've got the look of, of someone who's solved a crime Viv. well Tim I mentioned that John Steadman in his piece had called for somewhat of a boycott uh with the dollars now are those his words or your well words? and then and then you questioned me and so I've, I've found the exact line so you know we'll let our listeners decide for themselves in his piece he says as readers and advertisers we must hold the publishers to account and stop visiting or supporting sites that allow anonymous clickbait commentary to me that's saying if you allow anonymous comments, I'm pushing for our ad dollars and our eyes to, to not be there anymore. It's, you know, he's taken a very strong stance here. He's using terms like cancerous. He's talking about coward punches. It's pretty, pretty heavy. Look, there is an issue in some places as well. And absolutely of moderation, if nothing else. You know, there are, there are times when I, you know, I look at the campaign brief website and it's an absolute cesspit. Some of that stuff It's you know, it, it feels like it doesn't add to the conversation. And I'm sure people could point to certain comments on Umbrella that have, have gone through our human moderation process, which has gone through the same thing. But for me, just that question becomes, um, does it mean therefore, because some people behave badly, nobody should be allowed to speak? Or does it mean that moderation should be done better? I would say as well, um, in this, this piece is kind of very specifically uh, addressing a certain type of comment and addressing uh, trolling and people who, um, you know, target people based on whatever. But I think um, in if we were to push towards a place where we were doing completely, in, you know, no anonymous comments, what we would lose out is we've had over the years some really important pieces on um, sexual assault in the industry, mm-hmm. on... Um, you know, people being treated inappropriately, that sort of thing. And what happens quite often, not always, in the comment threads on those pieces is we do get people who feel like they maybe can't speak up but are able to just join their voices in solidarity and say, yep, this happened to me and it's really refreshing to see it's happening to other people. And even though we may have an industry-wide problem, they're able to have a conversation about that. And I think if you were to remove um, the anonymity of that, we would see a lot less of these conversations and therefore we're not having that discourse that we maybe need to be having. Look, and I suppose mm. a lot of the time when people are talking about those experiences, they're about they're happening at those very companies whose bosses don't want people to be able to speak anonymously. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Hannah, because I was thinking the exact same thing. I think in terms of um, one way or the other, anonymous comments or not, I struggle to come down hard on one side, but looking at the comment threads on the pieces we've ran recently on sexual harassment, sexual assault, bullying. Um, I don't think that people would feel comfortable and I wouldn't to put your name to something where you're saying, yeah, me too. When you know your boss and potentially your perpetrator is going to be reading that. Um, and I think that those are really important conversations to have as Hannah said. We have a hypothetical question. This is me thinking aloud. <laughs> and as I say, I won't really know what I think until I write it down. Um, one of the points and, and perhaps is a bit of a sort of straw man is this uh, conflating with trolls and anonymous commenters, because as a lot of people in our comment thread, th- comment thread argued not all anonymous commenters are trolls, which 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 might not be a point of view that John Steadman agrees with. Um, when we come at our comment moderation, I think we we lean towards everyone has a say, 
do you think we should be asking in that moderation process, is this person just trolling? And I know you can't know what's in someone's mind. I actually think this is a mistake that John made with this piece in getting mixed up between trolling and being anonymous. Trolling is something that has such a destructive and deliberate purpose and it's played out in a certain way. Negativity does not equal trolling. Criticism does not equal trolling and being anonymous does not equal trolling. So that's where I think and other commenters have called him out on this and started using quite funny pseudonyms using the word troll because trolling is destructive and it is hurtful and it can lead to all sorts of mental health issues and suicide but someone criticising something very validly without putting their name to it isn't trolling. And, look, I've had people come after me in the comment thread anonymously uh, about things I've done on stage, about articles I've written, about editorial lines I've chosen. So I do totally agree with his point that it can be hurtful, it can be anxiety-inducing, it can be really stressful and can knock you off your game for a day or two and, and make you question whether or not you want to keep doing what you're doing. That doesn't necessarily mean I was being trolled, though. It just means that people out there had a problem with something I did and they wanted to voice it. So I don't think we actually have that much trolling on Mumbrella. We do make human errors sometimes, and I'll be the first to admit sometimes a comment goes through and you might call me out on it or someone in the industry might, and I'll always admit I'm wrong and pull it down if it is needlessly negative. But I don't think criticism is trolling. Do you think we should more actively ask ourselves that question though is this person just posting to troll and have less willingness to publish that than we do at the moment i think i do ask myself that question already i always make sure that well i try to make sure that a comment is playing the ball not the player uh, people sometimes post quite amusing comments about somebody's headshot I think they're really funny sometimes. They can have puns. They can, they might even be mates with that person who's in the photo, but I don't let those through because funny as it is, we're not talking about the person's headshot. We're talking about what they're doing. So I'm regularly thinking about it. Another line from um, Steady's piece, which again made me wonder exactly which sites he was talking about. People are being attacked for their sexuality or appearance, to your point on appearance, for their perceived ability or public statements. Like those are those are four examples, and I can think of at least two of those things our policy absolutely wouldn't be to allow anyway, anonymous or, or named. And that's the other thing. Some of these things, just because someone put a name to it, I still wouldn't allow them to say it. Yeah, look, we're, we are not a forum for discussing someone's sexuality, and I certainly wouldn't be allowing that through. And but I, I'm also not sure anybody else's either no uh, look i don't spend a lot of time reading the uh, campaign brief comment thread because i don't have enough time to to, <laughs> to do that but again i think stedman's made a mistake here in linking sexuality and appearance which absolutely should not be discussed on a trade site with criticizing someone for their public statements because i think on a trade press site holding someone to account for their public statements is totally fine talking about their sexuality and appearance not totally fine. So I don't think he should have linked those four factors because I think some are valid and some he's right are totally Look, unacceptable. And Steady and I are trying to get some time in the diary to chat over the next few days where um, I think it'll be interesting to, to get more of his point of view as well. Next, GoFundMe drops Israel Falau's fundraiser. 
So Israel Folau, who was dropped by Rugby Australia off the back of a controversial Instagram post, decided to turn to crowdfunding website GoFundMe to cover his legal bills. But the platform pushed back and cancelled his campaign, citing their allegiance to the LGBTI community. Now, Viv Reputation edges Patrick Southam wrote an opinion piece based on the decision, which we published. Um, what was his take? Look, his take was one that I don't personally agree with, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to give it a run on Mumbrella because we obviously need to have diverse voices in, in debates such as these. He thinks that GoFundMe made a branding and a PR mistake in pulling down the campaign. So he thinks that it may means the fundraising website has taken sides in what is a political debate and a fundraising site should not be taking a political stance. So again, to come back to comments, this one generated a lot of comments and I would say that most of them strongly disagreed with Patrick and think that GoFundMe's decision was actually a good brand move and a good PR strategy. Um, I think this is particularly interesting because Rugby Australia copped a lot of flack for taking so long to make their decision with Falau. And that and was it's worth reminding people that this was about an Instagram post which suggested that, amongst other things, if you were gay, then you would go to hell. Yeah. Um, if you didn't repent. If you didn't repent. Um, and, and if you believed in hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd go even if you didn't believe, yeah, but according to go. that argument. Um, and. Yeah, there was a lot of backlash as to why it took them so long and people said that that had um, irreparably damaged their brand. Um, so it is really interesting that GoFundMe, I think it only took them a couple of days to say, no, we're not standing for this. A week. A Thank week. you. <laughs> um, and they also were very clear in saying because of their support in LGBTQI plus rights that they could not align themselves with, it, with this. Um, so... I mean, whether you agree with their choice or not, they've made a very strong branding point. They're standing by it. And as far as I'm concerned, that's way better than what Rugby Australia did. Having it up uh, was generating them some really negative PR. And in fact, to circle back to an earlier point, it was generating Australian society some really bad PR in that this multi-millionaire mm. rugby player or former rugby player with a, an extensive property portfolio was getting hundreds of thousands more dollars generated to him than the dying sick children next to him. So on the homepage, it has top fundraisers. And there's this guy in the fight of his life right next to people who are actually fighting for their lives. Mm. That was terrible PR for GoFundMe, especially during Pride Month when they're splashing the LGBTIQ plus flag everywhere to have that juxtaposition really wasn't working for them branding-wise. Again, to ask a legalistic point, I don't want to just make you our, our ha in-house lawyer. <laughs> I um, know why I'm here. <laughs> in, in, in this case, one of the arguments is that he was fired not for making the post, but for breaching the social media policy after, and if I understand this right, signing an employment contract that said, I will not break the social media policy. Mm. Um, uh, is he going to win his case? 
Firstly, slight correction, um, I don't think he had a social media clause in his contract. It was that he breached a code of conduct that all players are bound by who have employment contracts with Rugby Australia. Um, I did see a tweet that was very good that was like, T's and C's to Israel Falau zero, because <laughs> people are saying that's also the reason why GoFundMe pulled his fundraiser, um, because it was pretty clear in their T's and C's. Um, whether or not he'll win his case, uh, look, I don't know, there's... Even when you think it's a it's a sure thing, it's sometimes not. I hope he does not. Um, but I think it was interesting to see prominent gay media personalities like Rob Stott um, from Junkie say that he was also not sure if he thought GoFundMe made the right decision, not because it was a bad branding move, but because it reinforces Falau's whole argument that he is oppressed, that he's being deplatformed, um, and people rally around that. And they have um, in response to the GoFundMe decision as well. There's a new fundraiser up that the Australian Christian Lobby donated, I think, $100,000 to that now has more than $750,000 on it. So, I mean, it's disappointing, but it's also proof that people who love Israel Folau are going to support him regardless. Hannah, you're exploding Sorry. to make a point. <laughs> I am. I just looked that up because I was wondering about that. The Australian Christian Lobby fundraiser has just been paused after donations topped $2 million. 20,000 people have donated. And the ACL has said, your overwhelming support has raised enough money for now. We've put the pause on it. And if the legal battles continue, we will start the fundraiser again. To circle back to Mumbrella commenters, someone made an excellent point in saying that perhaps if Israel Folau had done this anonymously, he wouldn't be in such a pickle. <laughs> Next, why would a booze company back Dry July? So BWS has decided to partner with Dry July, or perhaps Dry July has decided to partner with BWS, uh, which is the Woolies-owned liquor store, which the chain is throwing its support behind the charity encouraging Australians to give up booze for the month of July. Not everybody's happy about that. Alcohol Research and Education's Michael Thorne penned a piece for Umbrella this week, calling the partnership, in quotes, menacing, desperate marketing. Uh, Viv, Michael's argument to start with. It's worth noting first that Michael Thorne is the chief executive of a not-for-profit organisation that advocates for reducing alcohol advertising and really wants to stop the harm caused by alcohol. So he's definitely not coming at this from a neutral point of view. I mean, I'm not sure anyone can come at anything with complete neutrality, but he definitely has a position and that position is that alcohol causes cancer and dry july is really to raise money for charities that help prevent treat stop cancer so he just thinks it's a really bad alignment of branding and that it's bad look for dry july when an alcohol company that profits off this is pretending that it wants to do good in this area when really he's saying BWS wants to sell you more alcohol. They don't benefit from dry July and they're just trying any way they can to weasel in on this event and movement that's gaining momentum. But aren't, isn't there an argument that it's no different to 
uh, betting companies which promote responsible gambling. It's better for the industry to do something than nothing. I would argue betting companies promoting responsible betting, they're probably only doing that because they have to. I think if they really got to sit down and decide how much they want to do that, they probably don't. It's a bit like on alcohol ads how they have to include sort of responsible drinking messages in 18 plus and often they make it as small and as unreadable as they're legally allowed to do. So, look, I understand why BWS has done it and it was a sort of because we're sober instead of beer, wine and spirits. So in keeping with the theme of the day, what are our anonymous commenters saying? (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, they're, they're funny, funny as always. Someone's called themselves, I need a drink. Opinion is split on this one, uh, both by people who are naming themselves and not naming themselves. Some people have called it a needlessly dramatic take on something that is trying to ultimately achieve a good outcome, but others are really questioning the brand alignment. It's probably not going to do any damage to BWS from a branding perspective. If they can sort of nuzzle their way into some good sentiment around dry July, then that's no bad thing for them. If it's going to damage any brand, the general sentiment of the comment thread seems to be it's damaging to dry July. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not actually sure where I stand on this, um, to be honest, but I think surely if Dry July's whole thing is to try and encourage more people to give up alcohol uh, to raise more money for charity, surely they need to be where the people are who are drinking and surely where the people who are drinking are is BWS. So <laughs> I under- I do understand that maybe this isn't the most conventional branding choice by them, but surely if they're just out here trying to get more people to sign up, they're going to the right place. Look, if there is an argument in favour, I think I sort of agree with you, which is, you know, there are some days where you just don't want to drink and you're at an event and you know some dickhead is going to try and get you to have a drink. And if it actually does a small bit to normalise that choice where it's, it's, it's no biggie to choose not to drink that night. Hello, this is me at every event. <laughs> <laughs> this will be me tonight at the Mumbrella Awards. <laughs> well, be unapologetic. It's interesting though. There's a, I mean, I don't think I'm one to cave to peer pressure, but there is a huge culture of drinking at events. And for some people, giving up alcohol for a whole month is a really difficult thing. I probably only drink alcohol once a month if I'm lucky. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about this one, but as you say, I guess BWS means that they're connecting with drinkers and that's who they want to connect with. Next, this week's guest, Hannah sits down with TEN's Chief Content Officer, Beverly McGarvey. They've got a lot to talk about, including the network no longer talking about, overnight ratings, and its programming slate for the rest of this year. So I'm here with TEN's Beverly McGarvey. So first off, I wanted to start with, uh, we received earlier in the week an opinion piece um, saying that 10 were doing away with overnight ratings as they were increasingly misleading and meaningless. Um, do you want to talk me through that decision a little bit and where 10 is kind of going from here? Absolutely. I think it, more than about 10, it's an industry position. And what I mean by that is people watch TV differently and therefore we felt it was time, as in other markets, that we report how people watch TV and we reflect that difference so that the currency becomes normalised. So overnight ratings, they're not meaningless. They have some value. 
but they tell you one part of the story. They do not tell you the entire story. And as audiences continue to fragment or they watch things differently and they watch things on devices and whenever they choose, we just felt it was the right time to reflect in our reporting how audiences were actually watching things. And when you look at things on all the networks, particularly the scripted content, the narrative content, the scripted comedy and the comedy content, people are watching things in a very different way. And we just felt it was the right time to reflect that properly. So what will the reporting look like from 10 now? Well, we will still include the overnights, but the top of our release, um, you know, the bit that people read first, will include a seven-day number. And that seven-day number will effectively um, pull in all the audiences that have watched that particular episode of whatever show it is over the past seven days. And if you look at other platforms and our competitors, you don't get an overnight number from Netflix. They don't say this is how many people downloaded this show yesterday. That's not a true reflection of how people watch TV. So I think um, that seven day number is just to say, well, this is how many people watched five bedrooms in the last seven days. And that is more reflective of the real value of that show. Um, It's also about uh, um, audiences and trade understanding what's actually working. Because as I said, the overnight number just tells you one thing and it's fine as long as you have all the information as well. So the top of our release will have the seven day number. And then as you get down into the body of it, we will report the over over day, the overnight number because it is indicative. You know, it, it's a base number that other things build up from. The seven day number only gets better than the base number. It doesn't go backwards, obviously. So when you're talking about that seven day number, um, so that'll be across you know, catch-up services and across all that sort of thing. That's where those additional numbers are coming from. Yeah, it's across our catch-up services and also our TV encores. And the reason that we're doing that is something like having been paying attention is a really good example. So it plays um, on a Monday evening at 8.40. Often the encore that plays on a Friday night attracts on occasion up to 400,000 viewers um, because it plays off the back of Graham Norton and it's capturing a different audience than watch it on a Monday night. On top of that, when you add the BVOD numbers and all the other people who watch it during the like, you know, on TV catch up or on BVOD, that number becomes a very different number than what it looks like on a Tuesday morning. So if you look the following Tuesday morning, it's very different. So I think we just really want to reflect that um, so that everyone has a real idea of what is happening. And the reason we're putting it at the top of the release is often, you know, if you're busy and you get a hundred emails in your inbox before 10 o'clock each morning, we need to make it easy for people to find that number because we think it is the real indicator of a show's success and also increasingly will be the currency that everyone uses and will become the premium currency. Mm. And it's interesting. So the comments we've started to get in on that piece, um, it's kind of split between people agreeing that you know, overnight figures are probably a little bit of an outdated concept. Um, But also there is the critique that perhaps 10 is leaning this way because the daily figures aren't that great. What would you say in response to that? Um, I think what we would say is this is not about us. This is about the industry. Um, So this it's not really to do with our overnights. We do benefit particularly in certain genres from those catch up figures. But I would say the people that are making those comments are not looking at the full picture in terms of what the Netflixes are doing and what Foxtel are doing. It's not just about us. It's about our industry and making ourselves match fit for the future in an environment where we're not just competing against other free air broadcasters, that we're in fact competing against you know, a completely different landscape. And some of the best catch-up numbers, to take it away from just being about 10, are actually children's TV. If you look at the top catch-up numbers on TV catch-up, things like Bluey are massive. The percentage is massive because people watch TV differently, particularly younger audiences and particularly kids. So this really is not self-serving for 10. This is something that we think is the right thing to do 
um, for the industry. And yes, we will benefit from it, but so will everyone because, as I said, seven-day numbers only get better. They never go backwards. So I think that's better for all of us and truly tells people the quality or the interest that any particular show is generating. And I think recently Five Bedrooms has probably been the best example or Mr. Black, two scripted series. If you looked at the overnight numbers, you would go, oh yeah, okay, demos are good and they're winning their time slot. But when you actually look at the seven-day number, it paints a completely different picture. So it is funny actually. So I obviously watch TV, but I um, don't even have the an aerial. I just watch everything on catch-up. So you're right, like it is a very changing, the way people are consuming it is completely changed from say even five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And people consume it differently. So if they consume it differently and we all accept that, then I think we all have to accept that the currency of reporting it is changing also. Mm, definitely. So that kind of leads me really well into the next um, question. When I was chatting with Tim ahead of this interview, we were talking about uh, David Mott and the renovators, which David Mott famously said there was no plan B for after the renovators. And then the renovators pulled 856,000 viewers for the first episode. And that was written by Tim in 2011 as a hugely disappointing figure, which is quite funny considering, you know, the landscape nowadays. Um, do you think we've kind of stepped past, obviously David Mott then, uh, was let go from the role. Do you think we've kind of stepped past that place where, ratings are the be all and end all and your decisions are made on that very you know it's a very David didn't leave 10 because of the renovators he left 10 a number of years after that Mm. but I think the concept of um, living or dying on an overnight number is something um, that is probably you do give things more of a chance these days Mm. and I think um, these days everybody has a B plan for everything the thing with renovators is that it's such a big, expensive show. It's not like you have another franchise up your sleeve to go, well, if this doesn't work, we'll have this other multi-million dollar investment that we weren't going to use and we have it sitting here. So I think the really interesting thing about that is really what what that number said at the time. And that number at the time said, okay, this is not a hit. It's going to get cancelled. And two things. First of all, these days, that's a hit. And second of all, you would not you wouldn't judge a series on one episode. Um, and I think there are many examples of that, both on 10 on the other networks of uh, the initial number of a series doesn't tell you anything. And I think really the initial series sometimes doesn't tell you enough because when there's so much choice these days, some shows take a bit of time to be discovered and sometimes they take more than one series. So therefore you have to look at other metrics like are your minute by minutes growing is the show really good quality? Has it got good buzz? And when you do research, do people really like the show, but the awareness is low? So, you know, you have to fix, you know, potentially a marketing problem rather than a quality of the show problem. So there are so many other factors that we need to take into account. And also at that time, the landscape was different in that probably at that point, I'm not quite sure of the number of years ago, that really was about eight years ago, Mm. Netflix if it was a thing, we were getting DVDs delivered in the post and also the multi-channels weren't as strong. The multi-channels would have been around at that time, but they wouldn't have been as strong as they are now. So a very different landscape. I think these days the landscape is certainly more challenging, but also more interesting because if you have so much choice, the quality of the content is only going to get better. Mm, for sure. And that actually uh, leads into something else I was thinking about Um Sunday Night Takeaway, which was a very high quality show, didn't do as well probably as people would have hoped. But you have said, you said at 10s up close that we shouldn't give up on it necessarily. Do you think that's one that maybe just needs a little bit more time to find its stride? Um, editorially, 
I think they did a really good job of the show. It's a really hard show to make. And I think Chris mm. and Julia were brilliant. And the production team did a really good job of making quality family entertainment. It was so new and so different. It just didn't cut through. Our audience just didn't come. The people who came liked it. And it just settled at a really poor number. And obviously that was disappointing, but we weren't disappointed with the quality of the show. So what we have said to the production company is if we can find a way to ever make this work at some different point of the year, we're open to that conversation, which is a conversation that's ongoing. The difference between Tweak Away and lots of other types of shows is, as you can imagine, by looking at it, it's quite an expensive production. So we'd have to find a way to try it in a different time slot in a very different way. Um, but we don't want to close the door on it because it is such a massive hit in the UK and we loved so much about the show that we would just love to try and find a way to try and make it appeal to a broader audience. We just didn't get it sampled enough. Mm, yeah. And that, so uh, during Tens Up Close event, we you also announced kind of the programming for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, Pilot Week about to hit again. Some- yeah interesting choices in there catfish australia which is going to be really exciting um you also announced the masked singer which is Mm. a real curveball for australian tv can you tell me a little bit more about that one well the masked singer was a massive hit in the u.s this year which is really exciting um and it's it's the biggest launch in the u.s in the last seven years in terms of a reality show so it really cut through i think the reason that the masked singer really cut through is that it's properly original and there are so many and particular genres that are incredibly well served in Australia, like cooking and dating, obviously, and we serve our audiences very well in those genres also. Um, I feel like it is, you know, when you look at the numbers for Lego Masters, clearly there's an audience for something new and people are craving something new and The Mass Singer is properly original. And although it is called The Mass Singer, it is in fact not a singing competition. It is a singing competition, but it's actually a guessing game. So who's under the mask? And our audience love a guessing game. If you look at the episode one ratings for any season of I'm a Celebrity, um, whether the series is high rating or low rating, a lot of people tune in to find out who's going into the jungle. And we think our audience will love the play along of who's under that mask. As well as that, when you get to the episodes, you'll get really quality, big, shiny floor production value and a big theatrical, um, exciting live show. But the, what's under the mask is the thing that makes it a bit special and a bit different and a bit bonkers. And for that reason, we're very excited. It's played in other countries as well, but the US version is the one that really um, pushed it through in terms of being a big international format. Mm, and it speaks really well, doesn't it, to uh, TEN's push for that kind of water cooler content. Like it's obviously going to generate a lot of conversation. Absolutely. And it, it is designed for that. It's designed to be something that you chat about the next day somewhere or everywhere. Um, and it's really designed to capture that you've got to watch it when everyone else is watching it. Um, it's not a massively long run. It's a big stunty event, which is also something by that time of the year, we will all have watched a lot of 8, 10, 12 week run shows and I think getting a short, short run with something exciting at the back of the year is something that there's a real appetite and opportunity for. So you did also tease at the Up Close event that there was another big franchise to come. There has been some online speculation. Are you ready to reveal yet? Unfortunately, I can't. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Um, because as I've said, Mass Singer is a short, stunty event, which mm. if you do the math would mean that we have room for another show at the back of the year. And again, this show is quite a short run um, and it's very splashy and very different to the Mass Singer. Um, but we're just not in a position mm. to announce it yet. But we will do so really soon, I would hope. 
I hope last week that it would be this week and I'm going to say this week. I hope it'll be next week. But again, I think it's something that'll really cut through because I think there's real opportunity for all of us in that back quarter. But you have to do something different in the back quarter. It's not like programming in January or February. It's been a long year of TV by the time you get down to that end of the year. So you've got to think about things a little bit differently in terms of we've all engaged with big groups of people and they've often been in studios and they've often been dating or cooking or building. So what looks different? is, you know, the question that we ask ourselves. Mm. So 10 have still got a lot to come. Obviously, you've still got Bachelor, Bachelorette, you've still got Survivor, and plus you've still got Melbourne Cup, um, which is obviously something massive you're doing this year. Um, How are you feeling about where 10 is sitting to start the latter half of the year? Um, I think we have a really, a very strong second half. The first half of the year for us was always going to be a lot different than usual. It's the first year that we've programmed without the cricket for five years. Um, a celebrity came out of the gates really strong and that was great. And um, moving past that, we got some things right, we got some things wrong. Um, we'll obviously fix, fix the things that we got wrong. So I think we've had a, um, it's been pretty solid and we have really good demos with shows like MasterChef and really good reach and really good volume. Um, but for us, in terms of, a mix of established and new shows we still have lots of great stuff to come so as you say we have bachelor bachelorette both with really strong principal cast um and we have survivor and last year survivor was incredibly successful for us this show's gone really well so we have those established hits and then we still have our new brands to come so we're very excited that we have a really good mix of familiar content but also enough new exciting different content to come we also have still got quite a lot of drama and scripted content to come mm. um we did plan for keeps at the back of last year that was obviously um it worked really well for us in demo that's coming back it's something that the audience love we have um another drama series called my life is murder coming five bedrooms is kind of halfway through its run hyper has really just started they have the rest of the year to go we've just launched celebrity name game which is doing much better a much better job for us than pointless was doing and um, the guys who did pointless did a great job it just didn't quite pop for us in the way that we had hoped celebrity name game is doing better overall but also particularly doing well in demo and also is such an easier show to sell because Mm. it's got different talent in it every day and it's a bit looser um, and it just fits better with everything else so you know we've got it's really only just started as well um, and it's growing which is really exciting so there's lots of good things to come obviously we have the horse racing we have the rugby world cup Mm. we have kind of you know the biggest bits of motorsport so we think our second half will be really strong. Um, we're really well down the road with all of that, obviously. And now we're working on Q1 for next year. It's kind of like you work on a 12-month cycle, really. Yeah, and you did um, mention that up close as well, that you feel more confident in the place you are now for 2020 than you did in 2018 for mm. 2019. Why is that? Well, um, mainly due to timing. Mm. So... I would suggest that if we investigated, you would find that MAFs and MKR are already at least casting, at the very least casting. And this time last year, we were still making our final decisions about what to do in Q1. Whereas this year, we have already decided what we're going to do in Q1. So we're further down the road in terms of casting one of the shows. Um, and everything else is just in better shape because with those big franchises, you know, with shows like MasterChef, they are genuinely 12-month productions now. So you kind of need to know at least eight to 10 months out that you're doing them. When you do something with six or eight months notice, it's absolutely doable, very doable, but it's a bit harder. So just knowing what we're doing, weighing. And also we learned a lot this year. That was the first year that we programmed so early and it worked really well for us. We also encountered some challenges. Um, 
interestingly, programming against sport with entertainment is a particular thing because you know what you're up against. Um, the tennis is the tennis. The cricket is the cricket. You know where it is. You know a long time in advance where it is. You don't know who's, you know, in the tennis, you don't know who's playing. You don't know the fixtures are, but you know where it is. Programming against entertainment is different. You know, programming against a launch of maths or a launch of MKR is very different. So we just know a bit more now about where our shows need to fall to take account for what people are doing viewing habit wise mm. in that kind of January, February period, which is something that we haven't done for a while because we always had a very particular cricket IAC. Then we get to Easter and we get to, you know, Bachelor in Paradise and through it, we get through all of that. And it was different this year. It was constructed differently. And now we know what that looks like. So let's double back just quickly to uh, Celebrity Name Game. Um, so obviously that launched this year. Mm. Um, you've just said then that you are happy with where it's at. Are you expecting it that's a, I mean, it's a tough slot, isn't it's it? It's a very tough slot. It's a tough slot. Are yeah. you expecting it to continue to build? I mean, I would imagine you're not expecting monumentous growth from it, but if it continues performing the way it's performing, are you happy with that? No, we want it to be doing more, but it's absolutely gone in the right direction. And the thing with a show like that is um, it does take people time to find it. Mm. And people at six o'clock have very, very ingrained viewing habits. There's a lot of people watching the news. However, there's a lot of people watch, not watching the news. There's a lot of people watching the multi-channels and doing other things. It tends to be those people that come and watch our shows. And not that long ago, like within the last two and a half years, Family Feud could do as much as 700,000 in that slot. But it was pulling in audiences who were watching comedy on the multis, etc. So I think there is definite a lot of headroom for Celebrity Name Game. We're happy with where it's going in that it launched things always J-curve. It dipped a bit and then it started to build. But the really interesting thing for us is it's performing well than point, performing better than Pointless in demo, but also it is still growing. Like last week it had three nights in a row that were kind of 290 instead of slipping down to 200,000. Um, and even last night on a public holiday, it did 275. That would tell us with enough effort on our behalf in terms of marketing and promotion um, that there's a lot of headroom there it doesn't need to do a million obviously but we would like it to be doing a hundred thousand more mm-hmm. um and that's that's interesting for us at that if you get the right you know the right number of people and they're the right people in terms of demo that really changes everything and we think that show has the potential to do that and also you know you can stunt cast it you can play with it you can have fun with it there's so much to do with that show so um we're very pleased with how it has launched and we know that it has a long way to go. We also know that those types of shows do take, if they're going to build, they take time. So with Family Feud, like it took, I think, maybe over a year for it to grow to its peak number. Mm. Um, so I think um, we need to make a lot of effort, but we also need to demonstrate some patience, which is a bit harder. So we've kind of talked about a lot of new content um, and a lot of returning content. What is it you personally are most excited about for the latter half of the year? Oh, probably the Mass Singer mm. because it's new and different and a little bit scary and also it's fresh and we've been excited about this show for a while we've been watching it so it initially was Korean and we have been watching it on YouTube and watching the funny clips for a while and always um always hoping that it would get a big US or UK pickup and the reason for that is the amount of development dollars you need to put into a big show like that is significant so it's much better for a market our size that somebody does that so then when it comes to us we can invest our money into cast and that sort of thing so um We've been looking at it for a while. When it came to it, it turned out to be a competitive bid because once it does those sort of numbers on Fox in the US, it becomes something that, you know, obviously everyone's excited in about. And if you work in TV, it's one of those shows that you kind of would have been aware of for a few years and just thinking this is so bonkers. 
could it actually get to a point that we could do it in Australia. So I'm really excited about that because it is a properly original idea and also I'm a bit frightened by it and you kind of need to be and in my experience of all of the things that we've talked about, the things that are the scariest are kind of the best because if if you're a bit ambivalent about something because it's not risky, then it tends to just fall in the middle. Um, The risky things tend to be the things that really break through or not. That obviously can go either way, but I think you've got to be in a position that you're willing to take some sort of risk to get a really good outcome. And also it can appeal to your grandmother and a five-year-old and also is potentially cool enough for a 25-year-old. And those formats don't come along very often. It's very unusual. Mm, Yeah, definitely. I know. I'm excited. We were watching the video of it and um, there was a cutaway just before the reveal of the mask and there was much screaming in the office about, oh, who is it? (laughs) I know. And that's the thing. Yeah. Um, And that's the bit that you're excited about is like when somebody takes off that mask. Um, But also there's some good singing in it, which Mm. is surprising. Um, So the quality of the production has to be good and the reveal has to be good. Yeah. Yes. All right. So before we go, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. So we've got bachelor still to go and bachelorette. Yes. Um, bachelor, you're returning to basics with yes. an unknown bachelor. And bachelorette, you've got um, Gogglebox's Angie Kent. Yes. How are you hoping those two will perform? Okay. Um, that wasn't too scary a question. <laughs> you think, did look a little bit concerned when I threw I know, it out there. It could be <laughs> I think this year's Bachelor will go really well. Obviously, Honey Badger brought a particular audience. And what we had with Honey Badger season was a lot more men than normal watching. So I'm going to go out and limb, which I normally don't do, and say, I think this year's Bachelor is actually going to go really well because I think we may lose some of the Honey Badger men, but I think we'll gain some women. Um, This bachelor is really unique. He's very handsome and charming, but he's also really clever and interesting. And he's just a different type of bachelor. And I think that will attract some lapsed viewers who might have watched, you know, back in the day when Tim was the bachelor, Mm. but now they might come back to sample it again because he's interesting and the women are interesting. And Honey Badger was great. He was he was such a great character for us. But at the end of that series, after you had after we had done a celebrity bachelor with somebody of his status, we had to pivot in a different direction. So um, we have been forced to pivot in a different direction. And now we've ended up with a great outcome with a really great bachelor. So I'm excited about that. I think Angie's series is really interesting as well, because I think Angie is funny and feisty. She's also relatable. She's girl next door. And I think a lot of women can relate to somebody like Angie and everybody knows somebody like Angie. And she's beautiful and she'll look absolutely like the bachelorette in the red dress, but she's also really funny. And the last time, the last big series of Bachelorette that we had um, ratings wise was, of course, Sophie's series. And I think those traits that Sophie had of being funny and honest, Angie absolutely has those traits. Um, So I'm very um, optimistic about both of those series. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining me, Beverly. No worries. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. But before we head off, the Mumbrella Sports Marketing Summit is next Thursday, July the 4th. Now, Viv, one of the sessions I'm looking forward to, um, you will be repeating history. You'll uh, be sitting down with the former chairman of Skins, Jamie Fuller, which was a terrific session at last year's when you grilled him. At that point, he was still involved with Skins and things haven't had a happy ending since then. Yeah, it will be a sort of weird full circle in that when we were chatting on stage last year, he was talking about brands really interesting after all all that we've chatted about today. 
brands and and aligning themselves with problematic events and and sporting events and corruption and you know he cited things like FIFA and getting aligned with that when there's so much going on with accusations of embezzlement and fraud and corruption. This time though, when he he takes to the stage, I imagine we'll be talking about something quite different because Skins has failed and he's been quite open about his business journey there and I think his take on things might be quite different because the brand as it was doesn't exist by the time that the Sports Marketing Summit rolls around this time. Well, plenty of other big names too, including Glenn McGrath, who will be talking about building a brand and engaging audiences. Do head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash sports to grab your ticket. Of which there are, as they always say a few days out, just a few remaining. (laughs) Also, if you are listening to this as soon as the Mumbrella cast goes up, then tomorrow, Friday, June the 28th, is your last day to enter the Mumbrella Publish Awards without being charged a late fee. And if you're late listening to this, then it's... It's, I guess, your tax for for being slow. Listen, Umbrella Cast, you you you'll have one more week to enter. But the Publisher Awards recognise um, some of the very best in consumer B two B and customer publishing. Uh, you've got to be in it to win it. No, head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards to get your entry in. Now, by the time you listen, uh, we'll probably be on our way to the Umbrella Awards, which are tonight as this podcast goes up. So good luck to one and all. That is all from us for now, though. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. 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 Toodle pig.